empirically, we've had these academic papers that show that volatility targeting does just as you said, it's, it's really, really effective. Um, it improves like sharp ratios. However, that research was applied to equity markets and people read the, these academic papers. And we know that, for example, the current following firms use volatility targeting kind of routinely in terms of their signals. So this is really important. It works for equity, but it doesn't work for everything. And you need to step back and figure out why. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Cam, it's great to have you back on the podcast. I can't believe it's been more than a year since we last spoke. How are things where you are today? Uh, everything's going well. Um, and got uh, a bunch of new research going and my teaching uh, begins in January. Exciting. Now, Rob and I, we are definitely very excited about our conversation today since we're going to talk about a really important topic, namely how to design and manage the risk in a portfolio which, of course, relates to your latest book that you published with Sandy Retray and Otto van Hemert, two of your colleagues at Man Group. But before we dive into all of this, perhaps I can start with you, Rob, um, because I'm interested and curious to know what your memories of meeting Cam is for the first time and also maybe whether you knew his work before you actually met him in person. I mean, yeah, this goes back to when I first joined AHL in um, 2006 and my, my first job was to put together a systematic global macro strategy. So I started, you know, looking at all the research. And have, but I guess back then, like 99.9% .9 of academic research was like equity factors, you know, long short equity, equity factors. And there wasn't really anything on what I was interested in, which was kind of cross-country cross stuff. And uh, I think I actually put global tactical asset allocation into into Google Scholar. And uh, and Cam had actually written a paper, I think, with that exact title. Um, and then I started reading his other stuff, and he'd, he'd done lots of things on, you know, cross-country equity and, and bond returns, which was exactly what I was looking for. Um, so I was raving about what a, what a great, great, great guy he was and how interesting and how, unlike a lot of academics, his work was really relevant to what we were doing. And uh, I guess that, that raving had some effect because a, a few years later, we actually... Um, Cam uh, as an academic advisor, and uh, I was able to meet him when he came to London, which, which for me was like meeting one of the Beatles. So <laughs> I, I'm sure Cam probably has a slightly different impression of meeting. Yeah, a way, a way different impression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I was going to ask you that actually, Cam. Do you do you remember your first meeting with Rob? Actually, uh, it, absolutely. So it it was it was really interesting uh, because I'd been working 
um, I've been working with a very, very small quant group at GLG, mm-hmm. and and then Man bought uh, GLG, and all of a sudden, I basically walk into a place where just so many quants. So I was working with like three or four people, and then all of a sudden, I'm looking at a range of PhDs that's larger than my my colleagues at at Duke University. And and what was really interesting uh, was the uh, diversity of backgrounds. So this was like just great uh, for me. So you got people trained in mathematics and statistics and physics uh, and chemistry, all of this stuff quantitative, and and very few people with uh, sort of a, a financial economics uh, background. So it it was great uh, for me, and I remember uh, my first meetings like it, it was yesterday, uh, and I was just so excited uh, to be able to work with a quant group of of this caliber, and you know it, it still amazes me um, the, the sort of uh, the sort of human capital that they're able to gather. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, it's fascinating. And also, it actually, it's quite interesting that in general that all these sciences has made its way to finance, right? I mean, that's not how we kind of thought about it 20 years ago, I guess, but uh, yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting because there's always been a, a good crossover of uh, of mathematics and physics in, in, in finance. You know, in the, the key 1952 Markowitz portfolio optimization paper that that was just like a like an or paper right that, that no economic content really uh, but it was foundational operations, operations research for the, uh, yeah. the people who aren't familiar with the acronym yeah yeah exactly so uh and and then um you think of all of the work in derivatives pricing merton and black and Scholes. uh that's like essentially applied physics right, right. it's like uh the heat equation so, so there's always been this really strong um, ability of people in financial economics to kind of pick up on stuff that is outside uh, of economics and and kind of bring it in. And uh, and and indeed today, the advances that we're seeing uh, in machine learning are just a, like another example of that. So it's really important. You can't just be siloed uh, in this business where all you do is economics or finance. You need to be well-versed on the latest advances in other scientific uh, fields. Yeah, no, absolutely. Anything you want, Rob, to add before I dive in with a... No, I think I think uh, we've, we've mentioned Markovitz, so um, I think it's a, a good thing to start diving into this book, which... I guess you can you can kind of trace all the way back to Markovitz in terms of its uh, you know, intellectual and theoretical underpinnings. So, uh, but yeah, over to you, Niels. Yeah, no, I'm curious. You know, um, Cam, there's a lot of books, I guess, that has been written on the topic in terms of portfolio construction and risk management. So, I'm I'm kind of interested in what motivated you to write this book with your colleagues, and also where you wanted it to be different, maybe from some of the books that's already out there. Right. So. There's no shortage of books on portfolio formation. No shortage of books on risk management. So, why do we do um, this book? And and actually, I do 
like to take this back to Markowitz and indeed my own research uh, 21 years ago. And Markowitz is a great idea, as I said, it's foundational for what we do in finance, but it's very limited in terms of its abilities. And it's limited in two major aspects. And to be clear, this paper in 1952 recognizes these limitations. So Harry Markowitz, who uh, I'm very proud to be a co-author of Harry on one paper in uh, last year, uh, which is a great honor for, for me to write a paper uh, with him, somebody I've looked up to and interacted with uh, for many years. But he points out two key limitations. And the first one is that the inputs have to be known. So the inputs to a portfolio optimization include the expected return. So a portfolio optimization is set up to, to actually form your portfolio for a good positioning for the future. You don't care about what's happened in the past, it's about the future. So you need uh, when you're doing this optimization to know what the expected returns are, to know what the volatilities are, to know what the correlations are, and then you get the best possible portfolio in terms of the highest uh, target return for a given level of, uh, of volatility. So uh, one thing that is often not realized um, in, in the practice is that there's no uncertainty here. You have to know exactly what the expected return is. And indeed, if you change that expected return, even to a small degree, it could lead to a, a completely different weighting of assets. So this is definitely a limitation of, of this technique in that there's no uncertainty. And uh, my research in quantitative finance, uh, and that's an academic journal, uh, basically tried to deal with that uncertainty by implementing um, a Bayesian sort of uh, approach for portfolio uh, construction. And, and think of uh, the Bayesian construction as not having a point estimate for the expected return, but you've got a distribution. So it actually, you've got an expected return, but there's a 10% probability it'd be less than X and a 10% probability to be greater than Y, you put that in to the actual problem and allow for that uncertainty. And, and that's what we did. Um, but it's the second limitation that's more important uh, to me and I think was uh, foundational for the, the research projects that I, I did with Man Group on this topic. And the second limitation is explicitly in the paper. I think it's on page 91, uh, where Markowitz basically is, is showing that the portfolio that maximizes the expected return for a level of volatility is optimal, and he gives uh, conditions whereby it's optimal. And essentially, the conditions uh, are that the investor really only cares about the expected return and the variance or the volatility. That's it. And, and he actually writes down that this would not be optimal if the investor has got a preference for uh, 
um, a higher moment like skewness. So basically, he writes down the equation that says that there's no preference for skewness. So think of skewness, positive skew is where you've got very large uh, positive returns, which people like, right? So, so right tail, um, positive surprise. And negative skew is where you've got these very large drawdowns that are much different than what you would expect for, let's say, a normal uh, distribution. So, so it turns out that, number one, the data are actually such that they don't adhere to uh, a simple normal distribution. And, and more importantly, number two, uh, investors have a clear preference for positive skew, and uh, they, they very much dislike a negative skew. So, so this assumption in Markowitz is really limiting. And indeed, you open textbooks today, and you see the same diagram that you see in the 1952 Journal of Finance paper, where you've got on one axis, the y-axis, the expected return, and on the x-axis, the volatility, you've got a curve, the optimal portfolio, all this stuff, right? Again, this is a world where there's no preference for skew. And what I did in my uh, paper in 2000 in the Journal of Finance is that I extended the Markowitz model in a very simple way. And that was that you've got preferences for the expected return, the volatility, which you don't like, and the skew you do like. So the uh, so basically you inject this, this third dimension uh, into this. And, and think of it this way, that you might have a number of portfolios that have the same expected return and the same volatility. Which one do you choose? Well, you choose the one that's got the highest possible skew. And, and the one you dislike the most is the one with the negative skew. So, so basically, you've got this three-dimensional optimization. You take this into account. And when you do this, all of a sudden, you're managing not just the expected returns and the volatility, but also the drawdowns. So think of this book as sketching a strategy. And what we, we actually uh, detail at the beginning is that risk management is often done as an afterthought. So uh, the, the, the risk team often is not even located in the same area or maybe on a different floor than the portfolio uh, team. And the risk team often kicks in when there's a problem. And what we advocate in the book is a holistic approach where at the very beginning, in setting your portfolio, you take the, um, the skew, or as we call it, the positive or negative convexity uh, into account in forming your portfolio. And, and that, I think, is the contribution that it's one of the few um, books that takes this view that in setting your portfolio, you need to take uh, asset convexity and portfolio convexity uh, into account. And if you do that, uh, it's got very good properties in terms of um, in terms of performance in in markets that are extremely um, uncertain and volatile. Yeah, I mean, obviously, to 
us people in the sort of trend following world, this is all very, you know, very familiar stuff. I mean, you know, we we always trying to produce strategies with positive skew. Um, and um, I think one of the problems I'm always having is that you often have a trade-off between, you know, sharp ratio and positive skew. So, you you know, you often, you're trying to, well, this one, one of the, a lot of the debates we have on the podcast actually are between, you know, people like, like Jerry, uh, who sort of, more lean towards going for for variations of strategies that have very positive skew, and and I'm I'm like, well, I'm prepared to give up a little bit of that positive skew if I can get enough sharp ratio. Um, so so uh, yeah, it's a very interesting debate, and of course, a lot of investors aren't even aware of this stuff, even though you're right, it's kind of sort of baked into their preferences, isn't it? Yeah. So so this is really interesting, Rob, because this issue of sharp ratio is is basically the sharp ratio is the Markowitz 1952. That's all it is. So it's yeah. the expected return divided by the volatility, or expected excess return divided by the volatility. That's all it is. So, so it, it's it's kind of obvious when you look at these different strategies, and you can see this um, by just looking at hedge fund uh, strategies. That there's a wide range of sharp ratios by strategy. So why is it that everybody just doesn't pile into the highest uh, sharp ratio? Well, the reason is simple. The highest sharp ratio strategies often have the the most negative skews, yeah. right? And so, they also, so they also a, require um, the most leverage often as well, right? Which 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 feeds the, into this, exactly. which feeds into the negative skew. So, uh, so basically, what you need to do is uh, effectively to adjust that sharp ratio for the level of skew. That's the right way uh, to do it. It is not easy uh, to do. Um, but that's the right way to do it, just to select. So I see this all the time that investors sometimes say, well, we like this strategy because it's got a higher sharp ratio. But, well, um, the sharp ratio is not telling you everything about the strategy. You need to look at some downside measures uh, also. And that strategy that's got the highest sharp ratio might be uh, strongly dominated by something that's got a lower uh, sharp ratio. So this is like a really uh, important, um, you know, it's, and, and it's kind of like a simple way to think about it. You've got a strategy that uh, you've been writing some, some put options and yeah. uh, the market isn't that volatile. So you get the sharp ratio that's really high. Um, but then some volatility kicks in, the market goes down, you get basically uh, hammered. Uh, and you've got the massive drawdown, and that's just the negative uh, skew. So any strategy like that, when you're writing options, that you're just inducing that negative uh, convexity. Mm-hmm. And, and that, again, is part of what we do uh, in our paper, where we detail different strategies and how they uh, contribute uh, to the convexity. And, <laughs> and Rob, actually, I do recollect one situation where you were involved, and it was actually really... Uh, insightful for me. I'm sitting in a room at AHL and we're considering adding a new strategy to the product. And uh, we looked at the dynamics of it. And I believe you were the one that said, well, that looks really good, but it actually is a negative skew strategy and that will reduce the overall skew of our product. And that's not what we want. So, so that was exactly like in practice, I saw that happening and, and that was really impactful for me and say, hey, let's, uh, let's do a book on this. This is really uh, important. 
Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I'm going to sort of dig dig into the book in a bit more detail, Cam. Um, so it's actually quite quite interesting because I, I ordered your book and, um, you know, as, uh, we, were, we were due to have the podcast um, this week and um, we were actually recording this probably a few days ahead of when it would be released, I guess, as normal. Um, so so today's actually the Wednesday after Black Friday, um, which for, for me personally, for quite a lot of people, was actually a real Black Friday in the sense that we had a pretty substantial drawdown in our uh, in our portfolios. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm reading your book on on sort of Friday afternoon and with one eye on on the book and one eye on, on my, you know, live live PL, which wasn't pretty, I can tell you. Um, and uh, what, what's the first first chapter I, I see in your book? Uh, oh, it's about uh, managing portfolios in a crisis. So that was that was amazing coincidence. Um, so I, I've got a few kind of related questions. So the things about crisis, they're all different, right? And 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 the 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 sort of events on Friday felt to me like something that you almost couldn't hedge against, right? I mean, it, the the it was something that really came out of the blue. Um, so I guess there are you know maybe there in your in the book you describe different ways that people have traditionally hedged portfolios against crises and some some ways they may not have considered um maybe you could talk a little bit about that and also you know how do we even because the thing about these these crises these, these things don't happen very often it's not like a simple linear well where we can just measure you know a statistic like sharp ratio or, or or a correlation you know a linear statistic we're talking about episodic events so um i'm just curious to how you think we should sort of m- manage these these hedges in our portfolio in terms of how they would guard us against different crises and what the kind of advantages and disadvantages are. Because I'd, I'd really love to have a magic bullet that would have saved me on Friday, although I suspect one doesn't exist. Oh, it does definitely exist. So, and it's very clear in, in our book. So if you had put options, long put options, then you're completely uh, protected. And, uh, and you're right, like in the book, uh, we go through various different ways that you can hedge and the most effective way is just basically to buy the put options. And when the market tanks, uh, you get a great payoff. The problem, of course, is that any hedging strategy, you need to take into account the cost of the hedge. So those put options did great um, on, on that Friday, on Black Friday. However, what about the other days? And what about over the last number of years? So, so one thing that we do in our paper and in our book is to look at various different episodes, which we label crises, um, which, and there's actually two definitions. One definition is just like a, a market drawdown. Uh, and that's maybe the most popular. We also look at recessions as a crisis also. Uh, and, and those are different uh, datings. Sometimes they coincide and sometimes they don't, but recessions are important also. And if you look at a strategy like consistently uh, buying a put options, that strategy is a disaster in terms of the drag in, uh, in returns. You're going to be haircutting your portfolio performance by like 10% a year in these non-crisis periods. So are, are you willing to pay 10% of your portfolio um, to have that 100% protection in, in the inevitable uh, drawdown? I don't think so. So, so, that's, so it's really important that, yes, you can 
uh, completely hedge, but that's so costly that nobody would actually do it. And what we need to do is to explore different strategies that are not as reliable as, let's say, a put option, but they're vastly cheaper than the put option. So you put that portfolio together, and maybe it's done in a way that mitigates the drawdown. So it might be not a 40% drawdown, but a 30% drawdown, so which is which is very significant difference, right? So a 10% difference. And often uh, managers are measured uh, versus their peers, and that would be significant uh, outperformance. So you basically make that choice. And the cost, of course, depends upon how close you want to get to complete uh, protection. Did you want to dive it a bit deeper, Rob? Do you have a follow-up? Well, I guess, yeah. Um, so, so what are the sort of the hedging strategies that you discuss? What are the kinds of main sort of pluses and minuses that we need to think about in terms of you know what we should be using? So, you know, obviously we've put options, they're the gold standard, but also the most expensive. So I'm guessing that as with skew and sharp ratio, there's a, there's a trade-off, right, between the different ways we can we can do this hedging. So, um, you know, what what are the the asset? You know, so the one extreme we've got no hedging at all, doesn't cost anything, provides no protection. Or the other extreme we've got, you know, buying put options, 100% protection, very expensive. So, what does that continuum look like in terms of the options that that are in the middle between those two extremes? Yeah. So, again, we discuss so many uh, different. Uh, Kind of passive uh, strategies and and active strategies. Um, you know, coming back to the discussion of of trend following is kind of like obvious uh, that trend following, theoretically and empirically, has uh, a positive uh, convexity sort of uh, behavior. So so think of trend following as when the market's going up, you're buying. So that effectively is like dynamically replicating a long call option. And then when the market's going down, you're selling. So that is like dynamically replicating a long put option. So you put those two together and you get a long straddle. And we all know that the long straddle has got positive uh, convexity. So you're going to be making money when the market's going up, and you're going to be making money when the market goes down. In the middle is where you're not doing as well. So in the middle is kind of the low volatility state where you're actually paying the premium uh, for the straddle. So it's kind of interesting that if you look at the history of trend following, uh, it, it's, it's remarkable that you do get this protection. So you do see empirically the uh, positive uh, convexity. You do better in the negative states. So uh, I described uh, a straddle as kind of a, a symmetric um, straddle, but it turns out that you do much better in the negative states when the market's going down than in the very positive states when market's going up sharply. But nevertheless, the negative states, that's where you really uh, want that uh, protection. And it is true in low volatile periods that the strategies have very low uh, or potentially small negative returns. But this sort of uh, strategy has historically been very effective in providing a hedge to uh, a crisis. So the key thing, of course, is the cost. 
And as I said, in the low volatility stage, you get a very low return, but it is a return. So it's small, but it's positive. So that's much different than the put option where you've got a strong negative return in the non-crisis states. So, so you get something in actually the crisis state and the non-crisis state uh, on average, even though there could be years where you get zero or, or small uh, negative returns. And, and again, it, it's, it's kind of interesting in going back to our, our sharp ratio uh, discussion. And I've heard this, but people say, well, you know, there were like a number of years where like two or three years in a row where the trend following returns were really low. And people say, well, why should I invest in this when I can get double digit uh, returns in just a long equity uh, portfolio? So, it, so they make statements like, well, this trend strategy is, is underperforming the market. And, and you're right that if you have this view that the way that you assess performance is just looking at a sharp ratio, then yeah, the sharp ratio during this period was much lower. But you need to take these other dimensions into account. So yes, maybe you're below the market or maybe it's a single digit return. Maybe it's even a 2% uh, return. But when the market turns and, and goes negative, these strategies tend to do really well. So they provide that hedge. So it's completely inappropriate to, to compare sharp ratios of, let's say, a trend following to a long equity portfolio because the trend following, um, it, it's got different uh, properties, this hedging property that's, that's really, uh, really important. So, so you need to take that into account. And I think that's a really good example of an active strategy that doesn't have a lot of cost that uh, provides a level of crisis uh, protection. Um, there, there is uh, a paper that's not included in the book because we wrote it uh, after the book with similar sort of analysis with the main risk that we face, uh, well, one of the main risks uh, that we face today, and that is inflation. Uh, and it's also uh, the case that during inflation surges, the trend following strategies uh, tend to do well, whereas you you know that equity markets do poorly uh, in inflation surges. Yeah, no, this is a super interesting uh, cam. I want to stay with the topic of trend following a little bit uh, more because one of the things we discuss a lot on the podcast is really the role of of diversification and and how it you know what it plays uh, in terms of of sitting inside a, a trend following strategy. Of course, we often discuss the diversification in terms of markets that we trade as a, as a key component, but also in terms of the different timeframes that typical trend-following models uh, apply. But I know that at AHL, for example, they've also really embraced the concept of diversification across models and how they can play a key role. So I'm interested if if you can talk a little bit about that, because this is where we a little bit divided uh, actually in our in our uh, thought process some of us um like rob and me we're probably more in the in the camp of saying yeah you you should actually blend different types of trend following models while some of our other uh, co-hosts they are more in the camp of, of diversifying across just time frames and markets so i'd love to hear your thoughts about this and and 
and what dimension you think diversification across models bring to the table? So I don't just have thoughts on this. I've got active research on this. So right. hopefully you can provide a link to a new sure. paper um, that is called Momentum Turning Points. And we do a very simple exercise uh, in, in, this, uh, in this work. And it, the, the models are, are highly simplified. So think of looking at momentum for equity returns by a fast momentum would be just looking at the past month's return and taking a position based upon that. So it's positive, you're long, it's negative, you're short. Um, and then a slow momentum would be, let's say, a 12-month momentum. Um, and a 12-month look back. So uh, you can look at the performance of the one month, you look at the performance of the 12-month. And we look at actually all of them uh, in between, including the six-month. But then you compare that to uh, a diversified portfolio of the one-month and the 12-month. And it's actually a dramatically uh, uh, different. So, so in our paper, we look at this um, portfolio of momentum strategies, and it almost always uh, outperforms either the fast or the slow. Okay, so um, and and we do this also across different countries, and it works in all the countries except for one, and that's Japan, but nothing really works in Japan, no surprise. And it is not really that far off uh, anyways. Um, so, so this idea of having this blend of strategies is really important. And, and effectively what it does is think of all these strategies as um, having signal and noise. And when you have a composite of different uh, signals, you are diversifying some of that noise away. So it's very much just like any other portfolio uh, of individual uh, assets. So uh, you get this uh, diversification effect where the noise is canceled out and you're able to get a much uh, sharper um, sort of composite signal. So I'm so the camp that I'm in basically is I don't even consider it a camp. Uh, it's basic stuff. It goes back to Markowitz, uh, 1952. Uh, let me just say one thing that's kind of related to this: that when we talk about diversification, diversification is something that people in finance really believe they understand. Is one of the most basic concepts. And I've kind of described it, that when you uh, have a portfolio of, of different assets, the noise cancels out, you reduce the volatility, and, and that's, good, that's good for you. But I want to circle back to the motivation for my book. And I basically make the case uh, with my co-authors that people really don't understand diversification. Because it's not just about reducing the volatility. It's about getting rid of some of the tail risks also. So there's a different level of diversification 
when it comes to the skew. So you need to manage that too. So when I think about a diversified portfolio, yes, I want to reduce the noise. I want to uh, reduce the variance, but I also want to increase the skew. And, and that's really uh, important in terms of the portfolio uh, management. So it all kind of links back uh, to the motivation for the book. Yeah. And and just as a quick follow-up before uh, Rob uh, joins with another set of uh, thoughts, I heard Sandy talk at some point about that since he joined AHL and, and to now, uh, there's been this massive expansion of, of, of different models. I think he was quoting a number of, you know, three, four hundred different types of models. And I don't know whether he was talking about man as a whole or just AHL uh, as, as a group. But but my question is, if we want to stay true to trend following, though, isn't there a limit to how much diversification we can get in terms of different model types? Uh, because in, in some ways, you would think that there is a limit to how many ways you can do trend following. Yeah, this is really important. And, and this is... This basically is what I mentioned earlier about um, Rob's question at one of the meetings where we're considering right. a new signal. Oh, well, that's got negative uh, negative skew. And that actually takes away from our portfolio positive skew. And what we're offering to investors is something with positive skew. So that that is the that is the foundation of trend following. That when markets go down, there should be a payoff. That's what people expect, uh, at least on average. Not every single time, but at least on average. So there are plenty of great strategies out there that have got this negative uh, skew. They probably shouldn't go into a trend-following product because it's going to, to drift the style. You don't want style drift. It, it, it can be a disaster. So people buying into a uh, a trend following strategy, thinking that it will do well when markets go down, then um, the portfolio constructors add all these signals that are non trend following signals, and then all of a sudden, when we have a drawdown, there's no hedge. The strategy actually goes down and could go down by even more. So so you definitely don't want to do that because Investors want basically what is being uh, sold to them. It's perfectly fine to have another product that might have some trend-following component, but that has got other stuff in it that definitely will perform differently. So maybe the the return on average is is higher uh, over the longer uh, horizon, but it doesn't provide the same level as protection. So, so I think that you need to be really careful about this style uh, drift uh, because it could lead to investors being uh, disappointed. Yeah, definitely. Um, one thing I, I, I must say, and this may sound a bit cheesy, but um, the paper you wrote with Harry Markowitz and also Rob Arnett is, is the one paper I say to my students. If you only read one academic paper this semester, read this one because it's so relevant to, uh, to you know, to what we do. Um, it's called uh, backtesting in the era of machine learning. I think, if my memory is correct, that yeah. is correct. Yeah, yeah. 
Anyway, back to the book. So for those of you reading along at home on chapter three, page 71 in the print edition now, uh, <laughs> which is entitled uh, Risk Management and Volatility Targeting. And, and again, this really caught my attention because volatility targeting is another very uh, controversial and, and, and popular subject on, on the podcast. Although, in fact, really, when we're discussing it on the podcast, it's really a question of degree and frequency. So we're mainly divided into camps of people who vol target when they open positions and then keep the positions maintained or people like, um, and I'm on this camp, who actually dynamically adjust their positions every day according to the vol target. But it, when we're basically doing the same, the same thing, really. It's just a question of frequency. So um, can you, and this, so volatility target is one of these, you know, very simple things that, that, that um, you know, that, that we can do, but which does produce actually, and if I'm being honest here, probably the most dramatic improvement in, in risk-adjusted returns when going from, say, a long-only portfolio to a vol-adjusted long-only portfolio. And actually, I, it's quite depressing, actually, because when you kind of lend layer on, you know, conditioning signals like momentum and carry and, and so on and so forth, obviously it improves further. But the, the improvement from volatility targeting alone is, is, is really quite striking for something so simple. So maybe you could explore that a little bit for us. Sure. Um, so there's a number of interesting things in that chapter. And the first thing is really important. And that is that empirically, we've had these academic papers that show that volatility targeting does just as you said, it's, it's really, really effective. Um, it improves like sharp ratios. However, that research was applied to equity markets. And people read the, these academic papers. Uh, and, and just by the way, I've been teaching this in my asset allocation course for 15 years. And indeed, I never thought that, oh, well, is this publishable? And, but I should have- It's too simple, uh, right? It's too, yeah, it's too it's trivial, very, right? very simple. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and we know that, for example, the trend-following firms use um, volatility targeting kind of routinely in terms of their signals. So, um, so, so this is uh, really important. It, it works for equity, but it doesn't work for everything. And you need to step back and figure out why. So uh, it works for equity. It works for equity-like strategies like, uh, you know, credit. But when you go to fixed income in general, like government bonds and stuff like that, the strategy just doesn't work. So, so let's step back and figure out what's going on in terms of theoretical mechanics and then uh, statistically uh, what's happening. So I just very, very briefly just double check that what you're talking about here is what you describe as the leverage effect in the book. Because that's that was a term I hadn't I hadn't come across before. So yeah, okay, yeah. So great. So that's the theoretical uh, basis for this, and it actually goes back to an idea of Fisher Black, um, the late Fisher Black, and 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 basically think about uh, equity is like a call option, right? You need to pay off your debt, um, and uh, and whatever's left over, you get. Um, the equity holder actually gets. And that's the foundation of the Black-Scholes 1973 uh, paper. But think about what happens when the equity market goes down, so or the price of a stock goes down. That when that happens, the, the leverage of the firm goes up. 
So think of a, a debt equity ratio. As the value of the equity goes down, the denominator goes down and the debt equity ratio goes up and effectively you become riskier. Okay, so, so the idea here is that's bad news. If you're riskier, then expect the returns uh, need to change. Uh, and, and that basically uh, is the leverage uh, effect. So the idea here is that we expect to see a negative relation um, between the returns and the volatility. So when volatility is spiking, this is basically increasing leverage and markets are tanking and the, the prices are going down to get a higher expected return. It's kind of confusing that to get a higher expected return, the price needs to go down. Just like for a bond, to get a higher yield to maturity, the price needs to go down. So, uh, so this is uh, really like fundamental uh, to the idea. And as to what's actually going on, it's, it's kind of interesting because if volatility is increasing, then you decrease your, your dollar positioning. So you've got equity investment, volatility is increasing, you want to keep a constant level of volatility. Therefore, you need to reduce the dollar weight uh, in equity. So as the volatility is increasing, you're selling. Okay, so this is uh, interesting because it links back to the trend following. When the volatility is increasing, it's always, almost always the result of the market going down. So as the market's going down, the volatility increases and you're selling, you're reducing your equity position. So that sounds a lot like what I described as the dynamically replicated long put option. So the volatility targeting is serving a very similar uh, function to what a trend following actually does. And, and the other uh, way, it's kind of the same thing, that uh, as volatility is going down, that's usually the market's going up, you need to increase your uh, investment in the equity, and that's dynamically uh, replicating the long call option. So the volatility targeting kind of naturally induces this positive skew or positive uh, convexity. And again, this is important to realize that the theoretical effect should only apply to risky assets like equity and credit, uh, and this just doesn't have much traction for uh, other asset classes. So, so that's kind of like the basic idea uh, in this paper that we focus on, on volatility targeting because it is a positive convexity strategy. So think about our book as uh, providing some methods for investment so volatility targeting is a method. So this is something that you kind of operate your portfolio um, with a rule like that. And we also provide analysis of the inputs uh, for the portfolio. So you've got the inputs, and then what do you do with the inputs? The book deals with uh, both. Oh, that's very, very helpful because, yeah, it's just something that, that I've always done without really thinking about it. So that was very helpful. Thank you. I wouldn't mind if we could stay on the topic of volatility a little bit further because one of the things that I 
find interesting is, and I don't know the exact sort of sequence of events, but if we think about volatility going back in time, it starts out as being this measure of, of riskiness, right? That's kind of how we started to, to think about it. But then suddenly at some point, and I'm not entirely sure when that happens, it becomes an input in our models, and suddenly it becomes an input in everybody's models. I'm curious to know how you think of this change and whether that kind of structurally changes something because at the same time as as this one component becomes a key player in our sort of arsenal of of inputs, the whole, not the whole world, but a big part of the world has gone quant at the same time. So you've got more assets following models. You've got this one input playing an, an important role for all of these models. How do you think about that in terms of yeah, yeah. So riskiness. Yeah. Let me rephrase uh, your question a little bit. Sure. And, and that is, well, your chapter shows all the advantages of volatility targeting. People read it, and those that aren't doing it are convinced now. So everybody starts to do the volatility targeting. <laughs> so, or a very substantial uh, number of large investors do this. And then um, suppose the market goes down, but not by a lot. So let's say 5%. Um, and then because everybody is doing this volatility targeting, the minus 5% is linked to an increase in volatility. So we need to reduce risk. So everybody at the same time is basically selling equities. And when this happens, uh, because uh, a large number of people are selling, this could be effectively uh, self-fulfilling because people are selling, then the market goes down even further. So, so the argument, and it's only an argument, um, is that, well, maybe that 5% correction was appropriate given new information came into the market. Um, but you're driven below the 5%, so maybe negative 9%, because of this mechanical uh, situation where people are dumping their equity to achieve their volatility target. And this makes the market uh, less efficient. The correct price should be minus 5%, but we've seen minus 9%. And this argument also just to be clear, applies to trend following identically. So a large number of people are trend following. The market goes down by 5%. Uh, the trend following signal says to sell. And potentially, the market is driven to minus 9%. And it not reflecting uh, the efficiency uh, of the market. So, so this is basically a story that's told. And I think the story doesn't really have much merit. And, and let me tell you why. Uh, that there are many very uh, smart investors out there that they have got their own models. And if they detect that, okay, well, some information came into the market, the market corrected uh, 5%. If they see the market going 
uh, below that 5%, they're buyers, right? So these are like value investors. So uh, the market is cheap. And if you see this deviation, they're just going to buy. So we're not going to see this large deviation that's induced by the volatility targeting investors or the trend following investors. Uh, there are plenty of other investors that if they see or they detect that the market prices have deviated from what they consider the correct range, then they will be buyers and will take us back. So I'm, I'm pretty confident of that. Indeed, if you think of the volatility targeting, it is, while theoretically uh, justified, it is a strategy that is a mechanical strategy. So it's a statistical strategy. The same thing uh, with trend following. The market return is negative, therefore you're a, a seller. Uh, there's no other information that goes into that um, other than that algorithmic uh, type of rule. Whereas there's plenty of other investors out there that if they see uh, some deviation, they will come in and either buy or sell, depending on what side you're actually on. So I think that the size of these players is so large that it is uh, just not credible to make the case that either volatility targeting or, uh, or trend following leads to a market that is, uh, is less efficient. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to me uh, when, when I consider it. And, and do I believe that the market is efficient all the time? Obviously not. Uh, it's never efficient. I'm a University of Chicago PhD. My chairman uh, is Eugene Fama. <laughs> the, they're going right? to take your PhD away from you, Cam. No, no, say. they're not. That, that's the key thing. The people misunderstand uh, what, what the efficient market hypothesis actually is. So markets are efficient in basically very stylized, very special uh, conditions that are completely unrealistic. It's just a theoretical uh, construct. And what really matters is just how efficient the markets actually are. So it's a relative measure. No market is efficient. And, and certainly um, my dissertation chair does not believe that all markets are, are efficient uh, at any point in time. So there will be some uh, deviations. And I guess the efficiency of the market just depends upon uh, how fast uh, you know, players come in with, when there's significant deviations and drive prices back to kind of a reasonable range. Uh, we don't know what the true price is, but we might have an idea of uh, like a confidence range, 90% confidence range. Yeah, no, it's quite interesting. And, and the whole thing about volatility in general, I mean, I think a lot of investors focus a lot of their time about, you know, on, on the point of volatility, but they end up equating that with risk saying, well, it's very risky, it's very volatile. But I think that the risk we really should be worrying about is obviously the drawdown or the, the risk of drawdown, so to speak. And and I know you touch on that in, in the book as well. So I don't want to take all the spoils away. I know Rob has more questions, but I think it's 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 an important uh, distinction between those two uh, those two things, yeah. Yeah, so think of drawdown as uh, very much related to uh, skewness. So it, it, it's different because when we think about a maximum drawdown, it's just a single episode, whereas a skewness measure uses the entire data. 
actually come up with a measure. But but it's related. So if you've got something, a strategy with a, a large maximum drawdown historically, that strategy likely has negative convexity or negative skew. So drawdown is a popular uh, measure uh, in the practice of finance. It's interesting in the academic textbooks, you almost never see a mention of the statistic. So we thought that it would be good to do a chapter on, on drawdown because it's just so consistent with the theme of the book that you need to manage not just the expected return and the volatility, but you need to also look at this, um, this third measure, uh, the third dimension uh, of skewness. And, and just to be clear here, um, volatility, we, we think of high volatility as, as bad, but volatility essentially it doesn't distinguish between big positive returns and big negative returns. So, so for example, if there's a surprise large positive return, then that actually increases the volatility. But, but that's good volatility. So, so given this ambiguity that some volatility is good, some volatility is bad, uh, you've, it, it's really important to go to this third measure uh, that, that tries to kind of sign the volatility uh, as good uh, or bad. That's the, uh, the thing that people always forget. And I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's, you, you was, when, you've got to look at skew, right? Because obviously standard deviation is a assumed symmetry and that doesn't exist. You need some way of measuring measuring how much we've departed away from that. So just shifting gears again slightly. So, so um, another thing in your book, which again is one of those things that we just do, which is rebalancing, of course. And rebalancing is quite similar to vol targeting in that, you know, there's a theoretical idea of, you know, Shannon's demon, which means you can basically make 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 money for free by by buying and selling as as the, the you know the asset follows this stylized random walk. But of course, the interesting thing is when you when you go to the empirical side of this, is that when you're rebalancing, what you're actually doing, of course, is fighting momentum, um, because you know you've you've got something that's going up in price, and happily every month you rebalance your portfolio and you're selling this thing consistently. So you're you're kind of fighting against the against the momentum. So I guess it's kind of two ways of dealing with this problem so the way the way i would do it is is obviously just just you know to apply a momentum filter to my strategy anyway so although i would be rebalancing for some notional expected risk that expected risk would be changed according to the momentum of the different assets i've got so if if equities have been going up a lot then um, i'd be rebalancing um, but the this the size of my equity risk could be increasing over time because of momentum so those two effects would Possibly offset, or even I'd even end up being a net buyer of equities as they went up. Possibly. Um, now, in your book, you discuss a different approach, which is about delaying rebalancing. Um, so, which to me seems a little bit of a kind of a backdoor way of kind of getting momentum into a, a long only portfolio. Is that is that a fair a fair characterization, or or do you think it's a genuinely useful and interesting thing to do? Well, <laughs> I believe it's interesting because it's. In the book, so yeah, I'm not yeah. something as oh, interesting in the it's, book. It's definitely interesting, but but to yeah. me, it seems like a slightly kind of secretive way of getting momentum into portfolio. So we're not doing momentum, and, but we are delaying our rebalancing. So, but we need to we need to think about the big picture here. So so let's and, and I mentioned diversification is something that investors really believe they understand, 
And there's another concept that they believe they understand, and that's rebalancing. So those two concepts are uh, probably, if I did a survey of investors, those are going to be right at the very top in terms of what people are sure they understand. And, And our chapter makes the case that people actually don't understand rebalancing. So this is another uh, method contribution. So the volatility targeting is one method contribution and the rebalancing is another method uh, contribution. So so uh, you're correct that this is related to momentum. And let's actually kind of go through an example of what happens with rebalancing. So suppose you've got a 60-40 portfolio and the uh, the equity market is tanking. So this is the situation where we're not doing volatility targeting. We've just got a cap-weighted 60-40 portfolio. And then when the equity market is tanking, uh, you need to rebalance. So your portfolio has become 50-50, and you need to buy equity to get it back up to um, the 60-40. So, so think about that dynamic, and the dynamic is that the the equity market is falling and what do you do you're buying okay so so that is exactly the opposite of what you would do in momentum as you said it's fighting a momentum and this mechanical rebalancing strategy is analogous to because when the market's going down you're actually buying to dynamically replicating a short put option. And when the market's going up, you're selling. And that's analogous to dynamically replicating a short call option. So you put those together and you get a short straddle, which is negative convexity. And what we show, uh, both theoretically and empirically, that the rebalancing... Uh, induces this uh, negative uh, convexity, and mechanical rebalancing actually increases the risk of your portfolio. Uh, Indeed, we've got plenty of examples uh, in the chapter where we show that the drawdowns, the worst drawdowns, are actually made worse by this mechanical uh, rebalancing. So so basically, the chapter um, basically uh, says, well, there's a number of things that you might consider uh, in terms of mitigating this increased risks. So, so the first thing is that I think readers will, after going through the chapter, understand that a mechanical rebalancing uh, strategy is not what you want to do. They probably had no idea that this actually increases drawdowns, so increases the risk of your portfolio. So, so what do you do? And we go through some heuristics like, well, you do only a fraction of the mechanical rebalancing every month or every quarter, uh, or you have like a, some banding. And, and our empirical results suggest that that is minimal uh, effect. It's likely not even worth uh, doing. And then we um, consider basically counteracting this extra risk that's induced by uh, the rebalancing by allocating to a positive convexity strategy like trend following. So uh, basically the, uh, the, the rebalancing is 
uh, in inducing an anti-momentum, you cancel that out by uh, allocating to uh, a momentum uh, strategy. And that works uh, fine. Um, but there's some, there are two issues here. Um, number one issue, the number one issue is that uh, it, it's, it's kind of weird to have a strategy where you're doing this mechanical uh, buying and selling, but then you've got to allocate to something else to effectively undo um, this buying and selling. That's number one. Um, and number two, that if you're a very large investor, like a pension or like a government pension, which could be like a trillion dollar uh, portfolio, there's just a not enough capacity uh, in these markets to actually counteract the rebalancing with an allocation to trend uh, strategies. So the, the other idea in the, the chapter is to use the information in the trend signal without actually investing explicitly in the trend product, but use that information strategically to time your rebalancing. So a simple example here is uh, the equity market is selling off and your mechanical rebalancing says, well, we need to buy. Well, you look at a simple trend signal and the trend signal says, well, um, the trend following would actually suggest that this drawdown is going to continue. So given that signal, then you delay your rebalancing. So you wait. So you use that information strategically. And when the trend signal uh, reverses and says, well, we're at a turning point, that is the point where you actually do your rebalancing. So you're using the information in the signal to change from mechanical rebalancing to strategic rebalancing. And while it's not as effective as just a pure allocation to trend, uh, it, is, it is very effective overall. Um, and you get rid of a lot of this negative convexity that, uh, that rebalancing induces. So uh, in terms of all of the chapters in the book, I think that this chapter has got the most to offer. Uh, it's got tangible value in terms of um, portfolio management for both uh, large and small uh, portfolios. And there's an analogy here, isn't there? Because um, a lot of um, you know, big funds, they won't use, say, FX carry as, a, as an investment strategy. But on the other hand, they will tactically do their hedging, their currency hedging, with that in mind. So they, you know, they wouldn't necessarily hedge if if it was going to cost them a lot of money uh, in carry um so yeah it's 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 maybe i was being a bit unfair when i said it was sneaking in through the back door um i mean there is another kind of issue here isn't there because it's to do with timing so i guess most of these funds rebalance monthly which is pretty much the worst possible frequency in terms of fighting momentum isn't it because if they if they rebalance daily or rebalanced like annually or you know that or every couple of years then you'd probably be outside of the the trendiness period and into the mean reversion period, and there wouldn't be so much of a of a drag on returns. Rob, I've got only a couple more questions because I know we uh, we need to be mindful of Cam's time. But do you want to? Did you want to talk about um, anything in machine learning that's more your uh, 
up your streak than mine. Machine learning, goodness me. <laughs> the only reason I, I thought I thought of it was was um, you know it's your I'd call it your last substantive chapter in the book, Cam, where because there's a chapter at the end which is about the kind of almost the kind of true outer sample evidence of the COVID crisis, the COVID nineteen crisis, which is you know is really is really good to see in a book, obviously, because we rarely get to see the kind of true outer sample um, with, with with academic research. Um, whereas, if, you know, of course, as practitioners, we're living out a sample every day of our lives. Um, but no, the, the chapter before that, which you know, is kind of man versus machine, I, I thought was 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 very interesting because you have a take on, you know, this eternal debate about whether it's better to have a you know a systematic strategy or a discretionary strategy. Um, you know, can can uh, our simple computer rules really replicate, match, or even beat, um, you know, the these uh, competitors? So that that was just the um, the question really, but as we've, in the interest of time, um, Niels, maybe uh, we'll cut what I've just said out uh, and uh, go into your question instead. No, I mean, no, no, no. We certainly won't leave your uh, your wonderful comments out, Rob. But I, I'm going to try and pack kind of three questions into one final one. Um, in in one way, I want to remind uh, the listeners that uh, of our conversation about uh, a year and a half ago, where we touched upon inflation. And I want to kind of tie that into a couple of things we've already talked about today. So some of the things that I observe, and I'm sure you do as well, is uh, on one side, we, we talk about diversification being a great, um, you know, uh, tool, uh, so to speak. On the other hand, when we look at how markets are today, they're probably less diversified today than they've ever been. They're dominated by some very large uh, players. They're dominated by some very large um, companies, uh, so to speak. Um, so there is a little bit of an issue there. I think uh, the emergence of inflation, um, and then on top of that, uh, I'd love to sort of you to, to kind of um, put that into to perspective of the 60-40 portfolio, um, as that still seems to be quite a dominant uh allocation out there and i don't know if if that's even possible to put these three topics into one answer but if anyone can do it cam it's it's going to be you well the, that is probably going to take like another uh podcast uh, to go through all of this right i know but but know. let me uh focus on the inflation a little bit because i know it's it's really important and i've been very active on linkedin um basically uh, criticizing um what the political and and Fed kind of spin of this transitory inflation doesn't make any sense. My paper um, that looks at inflation that hopefully you can link to um, sure. basically shows that the 60-40 portfolio gets hammered uh, when there's unexpected uh, inflation. So uh, inflation, we look at data the past 95 years in three different countries, but focusing on the U.S., um, we've had, when we published the paper, uh, eight surges. We're now in number nine, and, and that's serious. And when we look at these surge periods, uh, equities do poorly. Um, and then it's kind of obvious that fixed income does poorly. If inflation... Uh, surges that usually leads to higher rates, and uh, higher rates are obviously bad uh, for bonds. 
So, so the 60-40 portfolio is, is poorly positioned uh, in terms of an inflation uh, surge. And what can you do about that? Well, the first thing that you can do is to reallocate within your equities to uh, sectors that are more resilient to inflation. For example, consumer durables is the worst sector in, uh, in terms of performance uh, during inflation surges. The average return during the surges like negative 41%. It's really bad. So if you want to reposition your portfolio, uh, that is an obvious sector um, to do. But we also show that various different uh, factor kind of strategies, like quality strategies, so tilt your port- portfolio more towards quality, that has got some ability to, um, to hedge the unexpected inflation also. Um, we look at various different asset classes. So I've already mentioned equities. It does poorly, but there is a diversity of performance within equities. Uh, fixed income unconditionally uh, does poorly. Um, commodities uh, commodities are, are resilient uh, to inflation. Indeed, some commodities are, are, are the foundation uh, of inflation. Um, and, and we look at various different kind of passive strategies, but also many active strategies too. Um, so the factor strategy that I described, quality is an active strategy. Trend following, um, something we've talked about a lot uh, already uh, today, that tends to have very good inflation uh, hedging uh, properties. So this is, it's kind of a, a very strange time that the Fed has got this target of 2%. Uh, they've made all these statements that are not very credible uh, to me. And my LinkedIn really focuses on um, the credibility of the CPI numbers that are even coming out. So the 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 latest print is year over year six point two percent. But if you look at the components, it's really interesting because the largest component is shelter. So think of that as housing or rental equivalents. Uh, the rate of inflation for shelters two point seven percent. So so it is actually contributing to a lower a CPI. So 2.7 is way less than, let's say, the 6.2. But just casual examination of the data suggests a massive disconnect. So the Case-Shiller 20-city uh, housing price index, year over year, is up 19.9%. And if you look at rental metrics, the year over year change in rents is up over 10%. So how does that square with the 2.7? And really, the way I look at it is that those increased costs will just make their way uh, into the shelter component, and we will have elevated inflation for quite a while. So what does this mean? This means that, so inflation, this isn't really news, but it's only um, recently that the Fed has abandoned the word transitory, which I never uh, believed. Uh, and indeed, it, it just doesn't make any sense that it's 100% transitory. Certainly, some of the increase is transitory, but it's not 100% uh, transitory. That this is uh, serious stuff. And indeed, it is an ideal time to reposition uh, your portfolio to basically 
um, provide some sort of hedge for uh, higher than expected inflation. I think it's naive to think that inflation will be 2% over the next five years. Uh, the bond market uh, seems to disagree uh, with, uh, with my view. But of course, the bond market is being impacted by $120 billion of monthly purchases uh, by, by the Fed. So, so I believe that we are basically in the 3% range uh, for the next uh, five years. And that is, should be a trigger for investors to, uh, to basically re-examine the positioning of their portfolio. Are they set up to withstand uh, a surge in inflation that's not just for a few months, but potentially for a few years? Yeah, no, absolutely. That is absolutely perfect. Um, Cam, I'm going to end it on this note. Thanks ever so much for spending some of your time with us today. We really appreciate this, as I'm sure all our listeners do. And by the way, make sure you uh, follow, subscribe, and support Cam's work. And of course, make sure you get a copy of his latest book, Strategic Risk Management. As you can tell from today's conversation, designing your portfolio and managing your risk is perhaps more important than ever before. From Rob and me, thanks ever so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.